Welcome to the official podcast for the Society of Urodynamics, Female Pelvic Medicine, and Urogenital Reconstruction. Here you will find podcasts highlighting clinically relevant topics, ongoing SUFU initiatives, SUFU member highlights, and much, much more. Well, hello, everyone. We are on a tight timetable for this next few sessions, and so my atomic clock up here says it's exactly 2.50, so uh, I think I'm going to get started. I want to start with, start with a quick story. Uh, about 10 years ago, I was in the operating room, and as I do, I was listening to music, and I asked the resident, what group is this? Like we, It was actually a medical student, and he didn't know, and it was Led Zeppelin. So I told him that, and he said, oh, I don't know the oldies. Um, so the point is how quickly we forget. And uh, so I thought, I, I, I'm not going to do another eulogy. Um, that was done last year. Uh, but instead, I'd like to focus on um, Dr. McGuire's contributions to our field. So uh, he passed away February 16 at the age of 81. Uh, and just start with a brief summary of his career. So he grew up in Michigan, uh, got his MD in Detroit at Wayne State, and then served in the Army for 13 months. Um, which I think really changed his life both personally and professionally. It's, it's where he got interested in neurogenic bladder problems, uh, saw a lot of uh, soldiers who were paralyzed. I think it's where he developed his visceral hatred for suprapubic tubes. Um, and after that, then, he decided to be a urologist, uh, did his residency at Yale, stayed on the faculty there, and eventually was recruited to Michigan, where he was the uh, section head for about 10 years. He got tired of the politics there and went down to Texas, at Houston, uh, was there for seven years as the head, um, got tired of the weather there and came back to Michigan where he finished his career, retired in 2013. So he has over 300 publications. His first was in 1973, uh, his last was in 2014. And as I thought about it, you know, it seemed to me like there were two main areas uh, that he focused on. Um, the one was neurogenic bladder management, and many of the principles we follow today are based on his work, and also uh, various treatments for uh, stress incontinence in both men and women. So first, neurogenic bladder. So this is uh, one of his mo most famous papers, and uh, this is where he had a group of patients with spina bifida, and he noticed that the, you can see the highlighted area, the intravesical pressure at the time of urethral leakage was 40 centimeters or less in about half of them, about 20. And it was higher than that in the other half. And he made the observation that the ones who had that higher leak point pressure, the higher pop-off valve, didn't do very well. They had more problems with their kidneys. Uh, and so he developed that into a management system, saying if we can keep the storage pressures lower and have a low pop-off valve, he proved that the patients with spina bifida did better. And then he also proved that spinal cord injury patients and adults also did better. Uh, so he published that. And then this is where he developed, continued to develop the, the concepts of detrusor leak point pressure versus abdominal leak point pressure. So the paradoxical observation that some patients are completely incontinent and yet at the same time they have hydronephrosis and renal failure because of their bladder. Uh, and so this has been one of those principles that's been taught uh, on the in-service uh, exam and others for ever since. 
So this is an editorial he wrote about bladder compliance, which is another area that I think he probably understood more than anyone else at the time. So at physiologic urine production rates, the ureteral workload is related primarily to intravesical pressure. And any change in intravesical pressure is immediately reflected in ureteral pressure. The reserve power of the ureter is finite and appears to be overcome by intravesical pressures of approximately 40. So this is the idea of ureteral reserve. The underlying goal of urologic treatment is the preservation of low-pressure bladder storage activity. Some of the methods that we use achieve low-pressure storage, do so at the expense of continence, while others do not. It remains to be proved that all of these treatment methods are equally effective at preserving upper tract function and quality of life. So this summarizes, I think, many of the principles that he brought to the field in terms of uh, bladder management and proving that it worked. He, much of his work was focused on taking care of patients and what works and you know, helping us manage patients with complex problems. He was a big believer in video urodynamics and wrote quite a bit on that. His first paper, you can see 1981, talking about the advantages of video studies, and used this then in neurogenic bladder and the female incontinence, et cetera. This is a table from one of the uh, papers that kind of made me laugh because he listed the indications for video urodynamics, and I struggled to find anything on here we don't do. So he pretty much believed in using it for everyone, but he, he was able to demonstrate that it was useful in many of these patients. Another theme I saw was, I, I didn't realize how much animal work he had done early in his career. So he looked at primate models of neurogenic bladder dysfunction, and he observed early on that if you added an alpha blocker to an anticholinergic agent, that the compliance improved, the bladder uh, worked better, was really relaxed better, I mean. And so he then turned that into a clinical principle. And so for many years at Michigan, before Botox and other treatments were available, we would have patients on three drugs, you know, anticholinergic plus a mipramine plus an alpha blocker, usually a hytrin. And it worked. We, you know, here's a paper Dr. Cameron wrote uh, showing that it improved compliance over just an anticholinergic. So I see a lot of patients who are taking 30 milligrams of vitropan not really evidence-based. Instead, put them on these three drugs if you're gonna to resort to medical management like that and it works better. Here's a paper that he looked at a spinal cord injury again in non-human primates and kind of correlated that eventually based on his observations with what we see after abdominal perineal resection, uh, where if they have a mild nerve injury, they tend to have normal compliance and an atonic bladder, and sometimes that gets better. And if they have severe nerve injury, they have reduced compliance and open bladder, neck, hydronephrosis, et cetera, and those patients are in big trouble. This is one of the most helpful papers he wrote to me in my practice right now because it talked about using gentamicin intravesically to help uh, reduce bladder infections, and he showed that there's no systemic absorption even if they have reflux or have had an augmentation cystoplasty, and it can be stored at room temperature. A lot of pharmacists want to store it uh, tell them to put it in the refrigerator. And so at least a couple times a year, I print this paper out and give it to a pharmacist who's asking me questions, and they usually don't ask anymore. He was also one of the first to describe PTNS. Um, he didn't like it very much, even though it worked, because uh, you'd have to put an ACE wrap around the needle, and he said the patients would call all the time because the needle had come out or moved, so it wasn't very practical. But he did show 
This was back in 1983, I think, that it was helpful. The other cat, uh, topic is stress incontinence. So this is his other really, really famous paper, and this was voted one of the most influential urology patients' papers in the last 100 years, where he described the autologous rectus fascia pubovaginal sling, which he initially used for stress incontinence failures and then uh, described using it for other indications. So he wrote about, uh, initially, his experience at University of Michigan, then he moved to Houston, wrote about his experience there and with long-term follow-up, how they did well. He wrote about slings in children, slings in adolescents, slings in women with cystoceles, slings in neurogenic bladder patients, sling, slings with urethral diverticula. He was the sling guru. The other was collagen, uh, and he embraced transurethral collagen injections as a treatment. And while collagen is no longer available, I think a lot of uh, his work on this has really paved the way for the periurethral injectables we have now. So here are papers on collagen in women, collagen in men, collagen in children, collagen in some uh, transgender individuals. So I'd say that really, um, probably you would say one of his most, or maybe his most proud accomplishment was the mentoring he did in the trainees. So this is a list of all of the countries other than the United States where he trained people from uh, all over the world and really has made a huge mark in that way, which brings us to our upcoming award. So the Paul Zimskin Award, as you can see, it's awarded to an individual who within 10 years of completing residency or fellowship has made a significant contribution to the field. And I think uh, most of us view this as really the highest possible achievement for a mid-career specialist in lower urinary tract dysfunction. And uh, we at the executive committee to honor Dr. McGuire have decided to rename this the McGuire Zimskin Award. I'd like to introduce our winner this year, a uh, good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Ben Brucker, who's going to uh, give us a talk now. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, Quentin. So um, quite honored to be up here giving a lecture, the McGuire Zimkin Award Lecture. Uh, and I'm Benjamin Brucker. Here are my disclosures. So I was asked to speak today, but I was not given a topic. And as someone that likes to have a scientific question, I realized I could not rely on PubMed to fill these 10 minutes. Not being comfortable talking about myself or my accomplishments, I realized I couldn't recount my achievements. I also lacked the firsthand knowledge of knowing Ed McGuire or Paul Zimskin and would be unable to tell stories about how prolific or insightful they were. So I sought counsel from Quinton as the little information that I had was he would be introducing this honor. And I'm very happy that Q gave me a little bit of advice. In fact, he gave me the key, the perhaps the most important advice anyone has ever given me about a presentation. He told me to stay on time. And I think Stu may have a cattle prod if I go over. So my original lecture was going to be everything I've learned from PGY 8 to 18, and I didn't want to have to go back and redo the whole lecture, so I just changed the title to everything I've learned from PGY 8 to 18 in 10 minutes or less. So here goes. I've learned a lot, and one of the things that I've learned, and many of you I think know this as well, is the importance of mentors. So mentors are paramount. Uh, they give you direction, they help you focus, and they allow you to edit yourself. They give feedback and advice. 
one of my mentors, I was fortunate enough to meet Alan um, in medical school, uh, showed me how to be very thorough and pay attention to every little detail. Um, Alan has the ability to deeply understand a topic, digest it, simplify it into the fundamental elements, and that's something that I try to carry with me every day. I think many of you who have been mentored by Alan as well know that if you put in the hard work and you prepare yourself, you'll have his full support, which really goes a long way. He's in fact one of the hardest working, most passionate lifelong learners that I know. Uh, he has traits of being forthright and extremely loyal. And I think the other important lesson I learned was it's okay to enjoy a scotch. But again, you gotta pay attention to detail because it better be a Macallan scotch. So mentors teach you lots of lessons, and it's important for your career, uh, for those that are younger faculty and sort of uh, in mid-career, um, but it's just as important that you find a mentor that can teach you important lessons in life. Um, and I was shown by another one of my mentors what to do in hard situations. Um, and this is a, a faved instrument of one of my mentors, the Miyazaki Retractor. When you know that this is being called for, you know you're in, you're, you're, you're in a, a tough spot. But more importantly, I was taught that it's okay to ask for the help and advice you may need. I was given a role model how important education is and how to actually teach people lifelong skills. And what Vic has also done is taught me how to balance being an academic urologist, a loving father, and a devoted, loving husband. Nitty, as I affectionately call him, uh, is direct, practical, humble, hardworking, and though he doesn't always want you to know, uh, incredibly smart, perceptive, but best of all, I think the trait that we all love him for is he's a wonderful human being. Uh, sometimes he's actually really, really funny too. As he builds his legacy, working along many of you in this society, in this profession, I think that you will get why I cherish his friendship and his mentorship so dearly. So what else have I learned? I learned that if you love the people you work with, the day is a little easier. And this next mentor of mine actually became a coworker and is still a coworker. And Nareet Rosenblum, I can describe her as being honest, supportive, and selfless, but just as important, she has an incredible talent and makes everything look easy and does it with extreme grace. I also have support, wisdom, and uh, differing viewpoints that are often very refreshing from Chris Kelly, Herb Lepore, Samir Tanasia, some of the other folks that I get to work with day in and day out. But I think what I've realized is quite as important as having the senior faculty as mentors is having amazing junior faculty that will push you every day and expect you to be a little bit better each day. And Dr. Escobar and Dr. Stewart unfortunately could not be here, but it doesn't mean that they're not someone uh, that deserve the, uh, the accolades of being incredible uh, faculty members and, and junior mentors to me. The other thing I've learned is don't just hear your patients, but actually listen to them. And the reason I sort of find this important is this has been an incredible source of understanding of disease state, understanding treatments and impact, and I derive a great deal of satisfaction trying to understand uh, their, their experience. Um, it's a really welcome change to do this, and it's uh, enough to sort of deal with the phone calls and the in-basket and the patient visits. Um, but I think that if you are listening, you'll be able to ask the questions that can fuel academic interest. The next thing that I've learned is choose your partner or partners wisely. So disclosures, we all know, have their benefits. Um, my collaboration with industry has been incredibly rewarding. It's fun to work on new devices, medications that have really helped move the field forward. And let's face it, these are products and medications that we use every day to provide relief for our patients. 
they support our societies, our fellowships, and our projects, and some of the friendships of other uh, folks uh, that we meet through this have really transcended. The next bit of wisdom uh, I've learned is professional societies are priceless. Uh, and this paper is something that I think a lot of us in the room are quite proud of. Um, I'm sorry that the names are small enough, but each and every one of these individuals uh, really uh, is a big part of why I enjoy SUFU so much. Uh, this was an idea about five years ago, and to finally see the SUFU Research Network come to life in a publication and now subsequent publications has really been quite outstanding. Um, but more importantly, there are lots of committees to be involved with, and I would encourage you to get involved. I've developed friendships and collaborations. I've uh, learned a lot of wisdom and, and the importance of service, as well as getting to see different leadership uh, styles and insights. Um, and the one face that I think you will all recognize when I put it up, who's also quite important to SUFU, is this person right here. And yes, that's Heather's picture on the website, but we do need to thank a lot of the folks uh, at SUFU for, for everything they do behind the scenes. Enjoy your time at meetings. I know that I have, and I'll leave you with the quote alone. There, uh, we can do so little. Together, we can do so much. I would also like to let you know that it's important to realize that students can be the teacher and learn from your students. It's satisfying to see their progress, uh, celebrate their achievements, enjoy being asked hard questions and being tasked to solve the problems. Realize that your students uh, will actually teach you more than you teach them. Uh, whether it's receiving a neuromodulation grant, uh, fellows getting the jobs of their dreams, or being proven that you actually can eat an In-N-Out burger in six bites or less, that's Dr. Hickling. I didn't see him here, but uh, hopefully he's watching from home. It's rewarding having fellows. Uh, there's no greater joy than knowing that your fellows are well-trained, but also well-fed. We want to make sure that they're smiling at the end of the day underneath those masks. And even more importantly, you may get the opportunity to intimately know your former fellow's father's prostate. Um, and, and so those are some of the joys that I've had having fellows. I would also encourage you to open your doors as some of the most rewarding relationships have come from places far from home. And these are just a few of the folks that have, uh, I guess, trusted me to, to come from their homes very far away and train at NYU. And again, I thank all of them for, for trusting me. But the other thing when I put together this talk and tried to come up with lots of photos of all of you folks is I realized I have many more family photos than work photos. And I realized I think that that's the way that this should be. I've learned uh, that you really need to um, cherish those that uh, supported you from the start. And you need to remember where you go home to at the end of the day. Uh, so my father and mother, who I'm sure is watching uh, on, on a Zoom somewhere, uh, my sister, my children, my wife, uh, these are all really very important people. And I'm sure your families are important as well. It's nice to take a moment to acknowledge them. But if you forget this lesson, I will let you know that there's a great flower shop uh, in Grand Central Station right next to Track 32. Um, the final thought I have is we need to teach our children um, the important lessons in life with the same fever that you treat your fellows. And the first lesson is Eurodynamics can be fun. And yes, that's a C-arm off to the side. And finally, the next important lesson is make sure to avoid constipation. So with that, um, I realize that there is still so much to learn. Um, there are too many people to thank in 10 minutes and too many friendships that I've developed as part of this society. Uh, but I'd like to thank you all and thank the executive committee for this great honor. Um, and I'm so happy to be up here. Um, and I'm, in fact, very humbled and honored by the award. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to today's episode on the Sufu Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast streaming app. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and SoundCloud. Follow us on Twitter with our handle at SuFuOrg, where we'll provide real-time updates of our next podcast episode launch. And be sure to check us out on our website, www.sufuorg.com.